Uh, please pray with me. Uh, Lord, you've given us a great picture this morning in the sacrament of baptism of how you meet us. Um, you don't wait for us to be grown up and capable and strong and competent. You meet us um, by your grace in our most vulnerable place. Um, that's a wonderful picture of how grace works. So we appeal to that this morning. Uh, we're not here, you know, standing upon any other rock than Jesus, and we're calling upon the Holy Spirit to be at work and bringing your word into our hearts that it would thrive, uh, that it would, um, Lord, that the dark places would be illuminated, that the hardened places would be softened. Lord, whether it's new faith or renewed faith, Jesus, come and help. Help your hungry and thirsty people. Give us grace through the preaching of this word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, around 25 years ago, a professor of psychology at UCLA uh, developed an educational theory, and he called it desirable difficulty. And, and the theory is basically like this, that if you really want to learn anything in such a way that it really sticks, that it really gets into you, um, the way of learning it can't be easy. It's got to, be, got to have some difficulty in it. It's got to have some challenges, some struggle. And, you know, we've been in Mark for a few weeks now, and I don't know about you, but there's, there's been a lot of passages that I think have been very difficult, very challenging, very hard to swallow. Jesus has challenged all kinds of things from our conventional understanding of morality to our understanding of what righteousness is to what community looks like to what makes for real freedom, uh, forgiveness, what it means to follow him. So when you get to Mark 4.35 and you see that, you know, um, they're going to go on a little boat ride at night across the sea, it's a little bit of a relief. Uh, you know, it's, it sounds nice. But we're in for more difficulty. But desirable difficulty, that we would learn some important truths. And in particular, I think what this passage is going to show us this morning is two kinds of power, two kinds of fear, and finally, two kinds of faith. Two kinds of power, two kinds of fear, two kinds of faith. The body of water that they're uh, taking their little nighttime cruise on is the Sea of Galilee, and it's geographically a very unique place. It sits 700 feet below sea level, uh, but it's within 30 miles of mountains that are over 9,000 feet high. And that means that it, was, that, that it was a regular phenomenon for the cold air from the mountains to clash with the humid air of the Sea of Galilee and create these massive, you know, sudden storms. And sure enough, they set out and a huge storm blows in. And, you know, as it does, Jesus is asleep in the stern of the boat. Um, interesting little detail, by the way, he's on a cushion. Uh, it's, it's interesting those details speak to the uh, reality of eyewitness um, testimony that we're getting here. They were like, oh yeah, he's on that cushion. He's sleeping on a cushion in the stern of the boat. But he does wake up, and, he, and, and interestingly, he doesn't wake up from the storm. He wakes up from scared disciples crying out, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And so Jesus gets up, and, he, and, and interestingly, he doesn't grab a bucket. He doesn't start bailing. He doesn't reach for a rope. He doesn't tie things down. He doesn't tell his disciples not to worry or be scared. He doesn't speak to his disciples at all, not at first anyway. Instead, uh, Mark tells us that he rebukes 
the wind and the sea, saying to them, be, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Now, in that action, not one thing is happening, but two. Two things are happening. Um, there's no praying. There's no waving of hands. There's no kneeling. There's no conjuring. There's no incantations. The first thing that happens is Jesus commands, commands the storm directly and fiercely. Mark calls it a rebuke, uh, that he, he rebukes the storm. He says, peace, be still. He speaks to the storm like you would an unruly dog. Down, stay. But he also does a second thing. He causes the storm to obey. He causes the, the seas to calm. He does two things. He commands and he calms. Now, and he does so in such a way that the wind ceased, and, and, and Mark tells us there was a great calm. Now, look, all storms pass, sometimes suddenly, but in saying that the wind ceased and there was a great calm, we're getting a description of two phenomenon. One, an instantaneous cessation of the storm, and two, an instantaneous stillness of the sea. The storm didn't merely stop, it was substituted. It was substituted by something altogether different, calm. The great chaos of a raging storm was replaced by the great calm of a still sea, what's known in kind of maritime parlance as dead calm. So again, it's more than stoppage, it's also substitution. Even when storms pass, their effects can go on for a long time. The swells can continue for hours or even days. But here, at the command of Jesus, the sea goes from life-threatening chaos to, you know, a glassy mirror that you could see your reflection in, like you would a mirror. And look, all throughout the Bible, and in pretty much every ancient culture, the sea represented that which could not be controlled by human beings. It kind of had to be navigated, but never controlled. The world, you know, it, it was a world that could erupt in chaos, a chaos that only God himself could harness. And, you know, it's actually still like that. We used to live near a fishing port in, in Massachusetts, a town called Gloucester, and there's a, there's a fisherman's memorial on the causeway there. You can go and see this. And the thing that'll blow you away is it's a memorial to all the fishermen that have died since the founding of that town, and there are over 10,000 names. Over 3,000 since 1900. You know, we've never quite tamed the sea, and there's few more vivid pictures of the chaos of the seas than what you see in the biblical creation account, which begins with God hovering over waters described as without form and void chaos. The kind of chaos that only God himself could tame and order. And of course, he does that in the work of creation. So when Jesus does that here, when he commands and calms the storm, the first thing you have to see is he is doing what only God can do. He's not merely conjuring power. If he was doing that, he would pray, in the name of God, I command peace and stillness. He doesn't conjure, he commands, like an unruly dog, sit still. And yet, you know, I also want to notice this is not the first time Jesus does this kind of thing in the gospel. 
You know, if, if you look back at chapter 2 with, with the paralytic, he's doing something really similar there. He doesn't call upon God to heal or advise the paralytic how he might go and get some forgiveness from God. He d- does it directly. He heals. He forgives. He commands and he calms. He commands the illness be gone and, and that, that health enter the man. All that to say, Jesus is not just a prophet calling upon a higher power, and he's not a priest administering blessing or a king, you know, kind of wielding authority. He is power. He is blessing. He is authority in his person as God. He lives up to his name. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so, you know, if if you can see that, if you can see him for who he is, if you can see the truth of who he is, you know, it will unfold before you another truth. And that is that all power falls into basically one of two categories. Ultimate power in God and all other power which is contingent upon and subservient to God. Two kinds of power. You know, um, Seeing Jesus as he is, in other words, you know, has to get you thinking about power and, and reevaluating what power looks like in your life in light of who he is. That's, that's the essence of the plot line in this story in the boat, that Jesus' Jesus's followers have experienced a terrible power asserting itself upon their lives. You know, incidentally, into their area of greatest competence, greatest control, greatest confidence. These are hardened, hardy Galilean fishermen. It's not the first storm they've ever seen. And yet, when a storm big enough comes along, they discover it is too much for them and it threatens to undo them. That phenomenon, you know, I think in one way or another, to one degree or another, either has been, is now, or will be part of your experience in life. It will be. If it, if it isn't already, the storm will come. It, it, it may come in the form of financial strain. It may come, it may blow into your life in the form of wayward children or illness or loss or something else. Sudden storms, neither anticipated nor invited, blow into our lives. And, and very often when they do, we cannot imagine a greater power. We're like these disciples. We scramble for cover. We cry out. We think we're going to die. This passage is really saturated in the language of power. Not not once, not twice, but three times. Mark uses the prefix for enormous. It's a prefix we still use uh, today. That word is mega. Um, There was a movie recently about a a, a huge shark called the Meg. You know, short for mega. It's a mega shark. It's not your normal shark. It's a huge shark. Enormous. And so far as we've kind of gotten into this passage, we've seen two of Mark's megas. The first one describing the storm. These Galilean fishermen had never seen a storm like that. It was a mega storm. Uh, the second mega is descriptive of the calmness of the sea that Jesus commanded. It's not just calm, it's mega calm. But, but I think it's this third mega that is the one that kind of sets you back on your heels. It's the one that's most striking. And it has nothing to do with the weather. It describes instead the people who are with Jesus. Um, And in particular, it describes their fear. Uh, When the storm strikes, 
And they're bailing out the boat. They're afraid, and they're, they're in fact, very afraid. We just saw it. They're crying out, we're going to die. But the real fear doesn't hit them in the chaos of the storm. The real fear sets in once everything's calm. It's in the dead calm of the sea with the threat of the storm past that the disciples are described as mega afraid. And now, you know, let's, let's be honest, it's kind of bizarre, right? I mean, every expectation is that the story would go from kind of mega fear during the storm, they think they're going to die, to mega relief once it's over. But instead, this is a story of fear during the chaos and mega fear during the calm. And the question is why? And, and, and the reason I think it's why, why it's like this is, is the kind of story we're looking at. And, and this is not fundamentally a story of, you know, going from chaos to calm. That's not really what this story is about. Instead, it is an account of confronting a great power only to find oneself confronting an even greater one. That's the story. The, the disciples have experienced, in short order, two kinds of power, storm power and savior power. And sitting, you know, in the, in the calm, they are now, you know, seized with this fearsome realization that as great as the power that threatened them from outside the boat, they are now sitting in the boat with an even greater power in the person of Jesus. And that is striking mega fear into them. Now, I think it's helpful at this point to remember what they say when they cry out to Jesus in the storm. You know, they say, don't, Jesus, they don't just say we're dying. They actually say, don't you care that we're dying? Um, they're basically saying to Jesus, don't you, don't you care about our lives? Don't you care about our well-being? Don't you love us? And I think what they're saying is precisely what so many of us say when the storms come into our lives. They, they, they ask what some of y'all might be asking God right now, which is, you know, God, why aren't you paying attention? Don't you love me? Don't you care that I'm dying here? And that, that, is, that is some of the most challenging stuff in life, and I do not ever want to minimize it. Um, but what I think is even maybe more challenging is how Jesus responds to it. He, he asks them, after, the, after all of this is said and done, he says, why are you so afraid? Why have you still no faith? And, and the way Mark puts it, it's kind of like Jesus has gone from rebuking the storm to now he's rebuking the disciples. And you know, that, that question, let's be honest, why are you so afraid, doesn't only seem insensitive, it seems a little crazy. I mean, like, you, you know... I, I've said this a few times, but, you know, if you don't at least occasionally, you know, read your Bible and feel like I'm throwing it across the room right now, then you're probably not reading it. And I think this is one of those places where you might look at it and, and, and you know, be kind of relating to Jesus here and go, are you serious? What kind of question is that? What do you mean, why were we so afraid? I'll tell you why we were so afraid, because a mega storm crashed into our little tiny boat and it was filling with water and we were all going to die. That's why we were afraid. And, you know, and, and maybe making it worse, maybe adding insult to injury, through it all, you were asleep. You absolutely did not seem to care. 
If you did care, you wouldn't have let any of this happen in the first place. And that, in fact, I think is one of the most challenging ideas in the Christian faith. That Jesus allows the storms to come. And and it's particularly challenging if you see him as he is and you see that he has the power to command the storms and calm the seas. Uh, If he has that power, why doesn't he just exert the power to prevent the storm from coming at all into my life? And yet he allows them to come. But, you know, let's ask the question just to throw it out there. What if Jesus is neither crazy nor insensitive? And what if his allowing storms to come doesn't mean that he doesn't care and that he doesn't love you, but precisely the opposite? What if he allows us to experience storms that we might see more than just the storm? And that we might, you know, possibly see maybe for the first time in our lives a true Savior. Seeing him as he truly is. What if... You know, rather than imagining we hold the reins of power in our lives on the one hand or allowing power as it asserts itself upon us to unravel us, what if we would rely on him as the great power? You know, terrible as as this experience has been for the disciples, in it, they have come to see that the greatest power doesn't reside in the storm, it resides in the Savior. That's a great gift. And the fact that they're seeing more than they've ever seen before in Jesus actually comes in the next question, not don't you care, but at the end of our passage, the question where they ask, who is this? Who is this? Even the winds and the seas obey him. That's one of those questions that I think affirms as much as it asks. Uh, There's an admission there um, uh, that, in essence, there's a lot more to Jesus than we ever knew before. (laughs) Like, I thought I knew him, but I didn't really know him. They're they're wrestling through that as he's revealed himself to them in this this trial. And, you know, um, they're wrestling. It's good to wrestle. After all, they've, they've been with Jesus for a good while now. They've heard him teach. They've seen him do miracles. But, But still, it's like they're seeing him for the first time now. As he, as he truly and fully is. And, you know, it's, it's entirely possible that some of us are doing that kind of wrestling this morning ourselves, and I want to say that is a good thing. It is entirely possible, and I would say it's 100% likely uh, that there's some of us here who've been around Jesus for a while now. You know, and it's possible that you maybe tip the hat. He's an important historical figure. He's a great religious leader. He's a mascot for a righteous cause. He represents, you know, some particular culture. Maybe, maybe you, you really value him as a good moral teacher whose main job in life, in your life, is to, is to give you good spiritual growth, a solid family, some security, a godly country to live in. But, you know, can, can I ask you to look at him here as he truly is? More powerful and less controllable than even the storm. You see, it turns out that the disciples' near-death experience is a necessary experience. Because apart from it, it is entirely possible they never would have actually seen Jesus for who he truly is. They would have only seen and experienced the power of the storm without 
seeing and experiencing the power of the Savior. Apart from this experience, this harrowing experience. And when, when we see that, we can begin to see that Jesus is, is not insensitive, he's not crazy, he's not rude. He, his question to them is actually saturated with grace. He is pressing them to consider the radical difference between the power of the storm and the power of the Savior. Not just in the magnitude of those things, but in their meaning, in their nature. You know, storms are impersonal, they're indifferent, they're destructive, they blow in, they do their damage. Um, many of us have experienced that in life. Um, you know, how, how the storm has blown in and left wreckage. But the reality, you know, that's the reality of living in a fallen world, you know. And when we come, again, these are the worst struggles. We struggle, we fight, despair, uh, we cry out. We're like those disciples in the boat who I think, you know, firmly placed their confidence in their greatest area of, of competence until they realized it wasn't enough, until they realized it was going to be their undoing. But unlike the storm, even as Jesus' power will not be controlled or tamed by us, neither will his wisdom or love. Storms are powerful. They're powerful enough to even rob us of this mortal, mortal life. They destroy, but they'll never love you. But Jesus is more powerful. His love is particular. It is unbounded. And he comes not to wreck life, but to redeem it. All that's kind of rolled up in Jesus' rebuke to his disciples. And in it, there's insistence. And I think there's also an invitation that they not go through life imagining, you know, they're competent to handle the storms. But instead would have faith in the, one, the only one who's actually greater than the storm and with them in the storm. It's as if he's saying to them, you know, if you knew me better, if you really understood the power of my love for you, if you really understood the depth of it, if you were able to trust in my unlimited power and that unfettered love, there would be no fear. You see, to believe in the one kind of power only means you'll always, always be at its mercy. That's not to say you can't go a good long time, and you may even be able to go an entire lifetime, you know, under the illusion that you're able to navigate life by your own prowess. But, you know, the day comes for all of us when whatever resources we may have in this life, we will discover they are not enough. And a greater power will assert itself, even if that power is, you know, the power of death which comes upon us all in the end. But if we see that there's a greater power in Jesus, one fiercer than the storm, one that actually loves me, we can be assured we are safe in God's will, whatever affliction may come. Two kinds of power. One that will level you and one that loves you. And when you come to terms with that, you begin to also see there's two kinds of fear. We've seen the first kind of fear, I'm going to die. Uh, the one that has you crying out to preserve your life. But there's another kind that comes from seeing Jesus for who he really is, infinitely power, inten powerful, in intensely loving. And that produces an another kind of fear. It's what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. It's what those disciples were experiencing when the calm set, on, set upon the seas and they had mega fear. I think few have captured this concept better than C.S. Lewis in a famous passage 
of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the children, you know, go through the wardrobe and enter Narnia for the first time. And the first person they meet is Mr. Beaver. And Mr. Beaver immediately starts telling them about the great lion, the great lion, Aslan. And it prompts this exchange between one of the children, Susan and Mr. Beaver, and it goes like this. Uh, Aslan is a lion, the, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That is a beautiful expression of what we call the fear of the Lord. That Jesus is good, but he's not safe. That he is the king who holds sway over every other power, who lives and reigns so that even the troubles that come upon us, we can know when he is in the boat with us, they will not undo us, but ultimately work out for my good and to his glory. And that kind of fear, again, is commended in the Bible as the beginning of wisdom. That is to say, if you even want to take one step into the arena of gaining wisdom, know this first. See the Lord for who he actually is. And, and, it, and I think that's why, you know, Jesus doesn't ask them, where was your courage? I thought you guys were competent. Have you no fortitude? Instead, he asks a totally different kind of question. He says, have you still no faith? The real particular sense of the question is, where is your faith? Which is an interesting way of putting it, because, you know, we have, a, we have sort of a way of talking about religious people is people of faith, and then there's everybody else who, you know, ostensibly does not have faith. But let me tell you, you've got faith. Everyone in the world has faith. It is located, it is leaning upon something. And that's the thrust of Jesus' questions. What is, what is it leaning on? Where is it? Not is it, but where is it? <laughs> And that means he's not actually asking them about the strength of their faith. He's asking about the object of their faith. What building is your ladder leaning on? And, and that, that idea, you know, might be challenging to you because it, it's, it's entirely possible you've been raised in a religious tradition where faith was taught as kind of personal strength, something that you conjure up as, as a strength within you that you knuckle down and you power through and you believe really, really hard. You know, but, but a true biblical understanding of faith shows you that the concept of faith as personal strength is not only not an aid to genuine faith, it's an obstacle to it. <laughs> and the reason it's an obstacle is that, you know, focusing on you and your own strength and never getting outside of yourself means you'll never rely on the strength of another. And if your faith is in yourself, it'll never be in Jesus. That latter will be leaning upon your fortitude and not the Savior. There's another account in a boat in Luke 5 where Jesus asked Peter to take him fishing. And, and the funny thing about this story is that Peter had just come in from fishing. He'd been out all night. And he's a pro. And he's been out there all night doing all of his fisherman tricks, and he has caught nothing. And then Jesus, the carpenter, inserts himself and says, let's go back out and go fishing. And, you know, inserting himself into Peter's area of expertise, which has put food on the table and a roof over his head for a long, long time. But Peter demurs, they go out, they set down the nets, and they haul in this huge catch. And when Peter sees that, 
he realizes two things instantaneously. He had faith, and it had been terribly misplaced. He saw his self-reliance as pitiful, and he saw Jesus as powerful. And it caused him to cry out, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Those are the words of a man who is seeing clearly, maybe for the first time, that he needs more than himself and his own resources. So Jesus is gracious to climb into the arena of our greatest competence, of our greatest confidence, and show us that, in fact, it is utterly insufficient. All that we would find sufficiency in him. And I think to understand that the real depth of that, it's really imperative that we take a moment as we close here to consider an event in the Bible almost identical to the one we just read about in Mark, and it's in the story of Jonah. Uh, Jonah, in a nutshell, goes something like this. The word of the Lord comes to him to go to Nineveh, uh, you know, kind of the, the worst people on the planet to go proclaim the good news of the, of the Lord. But instead of obeying the Lord, that idea is odious to him. He heads out by boat in the exact opposite direction of where the Lord is calling him to go. And it's that time on the boat that tightly parallels the account we just read in Mark. In remarkable ways. A devastating storm comes upon the boat. Jonah's asleep as the storm rages. When the storm hits, there are seasoned sailors who wake up the sleeping one and say, we're all going to die. The storm is miraculously calmed by God's supernatural intervention. And both, in both accounts, the sailors are more terrified after the storm than during it. Striking. But I think as striking as those similarities are, I mean, you kind of look at it and go, why do we need two of the exact same stories in the Bible? More striking than similarities is a singular difference that makes all the difference. When the storm hit Jonah, he told the sailors, I know how to calm the storm. There's only one way. You have to throw me into the, into the raging sea. And he was operating on the logic that if the sea swallowed him up, it wouldn't swallow them up. That, that if he was tossed into the depths, they'd be high and dry. That if he dies, they'll live. And, and with, with kind of painful reluctance, <coughs> Jonah's companions do just that. They throw him out there. And, and that's exactly what happens. They're saved. But here's the difference in Mark. Jesus is never thrown into the sea. He never goes overboard. And, and you know, given the, the remarkable level of parallel between Jonah and Jesus' time in the storm, you know, I think that makes Mark's story seem like, you know, something like an unfinished sentence, like an unresolved chord, you know, a half-painted canvas. Where's the rest of the story when Jesus goes over? Well, it's noteworthy to say that of all the prophets in the Bible, Jesus compared himself only to one, to Jonah. People were saying to Jesus, you know, if you're really the Savior, give us a sign. And Jesus said, I'll give you a sign, and we'll give you one sign, the sign of Jonah. And, and, you know, in essence, he's saying, if you really want to understand me and what I've come to do, look to that Jonah story. And as you do, know this, Jesus said, that one greater than Jonah is here. Uh, there's parallels, but, you know, one like Jonah has come, but just know this, that I'm greater than Jonah. And when we see the sign of Jonah, we, we, we see this, the unresolved cord here in Mark 4 comes to be resolved at the cross. 
That's where it's resolved. Jonah calmed the storm by being willingly thrown into the chaos of the seas so that his companion would be saved. But Jesus, the greater Jonah, comes to be thrown into the raging storm of sin and death and hell, the storm that bears down on all of us and will sooner or later not just take your body, but your soul. And Jesus throws himself into that storm so that we might live, so that we'd be saved. That is the storm that he endured for you and me on the cross. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and came out alive, and Jesus was in the grave for three days and was raised to newness of life so that those who put their faith in him would not be consumed, but instead would be carried safe to the other side. You know, no one, and I have met some of the most remarkable, talented people I've ever met in my life in this church. Let me tell you, none of you are competent to seafare your way through that storm. Uh, But you can be saved from it. Jesus is gracious to have climbed in the boat with us, not leaving us to something as pitiful as our competence, so that those who put their faith in him aren't left to the fate of the only storm that will take not only your body but your soul. And he saves not by making demands of us, but by throwing himself into that which we could never endure and would certainly undo us. Holy, completely, fully, and finally that we would live. And so the question is to us, you know, I'll put it to us this morning, where's your faith? Where is it? It's somewhere. Is it power? Is it money? Is it health? Is it your education? Is it your family or your reputation or your politics or some identity you've curated for yourself? Well, none of that will save. None of that is more powerful than any storm. But Jesus is more powerful than all the storms, and his love is fiercer. And when you trust him and put yourself in the community of his people, put yourself in that boat, uh, he'll be with you through all those storms. So that when the final storm of death comes, he will be there to take you safe to the other side. You know, this table that we come to every week, it's really important to say it's not for the strong. (laughs) It's for the weak. It's not for the full. It is for the famished. It's for those who've seen Jesus for who he is. It's for those who have looked upon life and said, there's no way. I can't survive it. I need to be carried. I need to be saved. I'm turning from conjuring life up within myself uh, to to leaning on the Lord Jesus. So as we come, I just want to say, you know, let's take stock. Let's look at our life and look at the Lord and trust in Him, either for the first time or in a fresh way, turning from, you know, all the fraying and fragile trusts, those things you daydream about, and rely on Him alone, because every other power will level you in the end, But Jesus is the Lord who loves us to the very end. So let's pray as we come to the table. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Um, Thank you for being in it with us um, and for putting the question to us, where's your faith? You know, I'm a professional religious person, and it is embarrassing how regularly you know, and easily and instinctively, I, I go to unbelief. I mean, I honor you with my lips pretty well, but functionally, when it comes to where my trust is, where my hopes are, all those things, all those red dashboard lights that show up on my, in my heart,
you know, they indicate that they indicate misplaced faith. But Lord, you are gracious to be in the boat with us. You're gracious to pursue us. You're gracious to, to have kept us in your church and to bring us to this table week in and week out that we would be fed. It's a remarkable thing. We're not coming up here with resolutions and you know, conjuring up a strength in ourselves and saying, you know, Jesus, just get, please give me one more chance and I'll prove it. No. We prove our unfaithfulness all the time, and you prove yourself flawlessly faithful. And so we come and lean on that and eat and drink that. So, Lord, help us to do that. Uh, Lord, um, that we would be assured and well-fed and that this table that we come around here, uh, that that it would also be um, a great anticipation for us for the day when we will sit at your table, when we will have been carried to the other side. And sin will be no more. And we will feast and we will bathe in the glory of the light of our Savior. There won't even be a sun anymore because it will be unnecessary. Um, Lord, meet us here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.